This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Jeffrey Roche, an accomplished leader with with a steadfast commitment and passion for healthcare innovation, future-focused strategy, transformation, cultural change, diversity, equity, and inclusion. He's also someone that is one of the leading thought leaders on workforce development for the future of value-based care and health equity transformation. Jeffrey currently serves as the Senior Vice President of National Healthcare Practice and Workforce Partnerships for Core Education. His professional career includes over nine years in hospital administration as a strategic advisor to the president and CEO and department director of various departments. He's worked with Lehigh Valley Hospital in Pocono. He's someone that's served at the highest levels of health equity advocacy. You'll hear about that in the podcast. And, you know, Daniel, I just cannot think of a a, a more fun episode uh, of late than, than someone like Jeffrey. I was just so immersed in everything that he had to say. It was just so moving and inspirational to see a leader like him out there leaning into this industry with purpose and, and, and significance and trying to make a difference. Eric, I wholeheartedly agree. I can't add much more to that uh, stellar review other than just to say that if you're thinking about serving the underserved and vulnerable populations, if you want to understand love and leadership and holding leaders accountable for, for excellent service and, and equity in, in healthcare, Jeffrey's episode is the right place to be, and we're glad you're listening. Thanks for joining us today. Well, we appreciate you joining us this week. And if you like what you hear, we'd love to to get your review on Apple Podcasts. Please uh, feel free to also give us a five-star rating if you're so inclined. And definitely go to our website, racetovalue.org, if you want to subscribe to our newsletter and check out other episodes. So let's go ahead and hear now from Jeffrey Roche as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Jeffrey, welcome to the Race to Value. It's great to have you on this week. Thanks, Eric, for having me. Well, it's a pleasure, my friend. And I have really been looking forward to your conversation. I've been following what you're, you've been doing at the national level in health equity. I mean, you have such a passion in this area. I mean, you're a national leader on the equity front. I mean, you've served on numerous task forces and committees, including the Pennsylvania Department of Health Equity Advisory Committee, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf's COVID-19 Task Force for Racial Equity Subcommittee. You're a recent appointee to the 
National Health Equity Task Force, and then an initiative of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Your experience in collaborating on solutions to overcome barriers in health equity, as I understand, is informed by a deeply rooted commitment to social justice. As an advocate for public-private collaborations, you've worked with all types of stakeholders and underserved communities from policymakers, law enforcement, educators, and faith-based leaders in this pursuit of equity in our country. And as I understand, this uh, leadership journey was amplified by what you learned a decade ago on sojourns into the homeless encampment behind the Walmart Supercenter in East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, where you really began to understand how power and equity and health made a, an impact on people's lives. And during these trips to the homeless encampment, where you were accompanied by the CEO of Lehigh Valley Hospital Pocono, where you worked until 2017 as a director of public and government affairs, you'd go in and offer food, water, health, and information to, to people that were really in need. And uh, I just wanted to start our conversation today by asking you to describe your leadership journey and health equity over these last few years. And, and given this work and exposure that you've had to public-private partners, can you explain how we can achieve health equity in our country through transformative economic and social policies? Absolutely. And, and obviously, um, you know, you, you did an incredible deep dive, Eric, into, uh, into, you know, what really formed a lot of my, my early start to this work, but, but more importantly, the passion that others impacted on me through this work. So, you know, my leadership journey, in quite honesty, really, you know, started in that work at Lehigh Valley Hospital Pocono at the time we were doing, you know, what was our first community health needs assessment. And many people didn't think of the Poconos as the type of region that had uh, quite a bit of homelessness and, and had, you know, these challenges literally right in our backyard. And what was interesting about it to that exact point is the fact that literally these camps where people, uh, many who were veterans, uh, many individuals who actually uh, were married, but but went through difficult times, and then were literally living on the streets. We're actually living right near our very own hospital, uh, literally a mile from our hospital. And so, through a lot of listening and learning, we learned about this situation. And I will never forget the time that we were out at an event in the community, and a community advocate said to me, "You've got to be more aware of this. You've got to understand the healthcare issues that are that are at stake here." You've got to understand the social issues that are at stake and ultimately who's responsible uh, to step in here and help. And just so happened that I had a CEO who was truly a warrior for social justice, uh, somebody who uh, literally got her training early in Newark Beth, uh, Newark Beth Israel, uh, served many years in, in Newark as well as in New York City. And so, you know, she saw some of the most challenging healthcare issues you could imagine uh, as a nurse. Uh, worked her way up into leadership as a nurse and eventually became a CNO. Um, and then obviously our president and CEO after serving several years as the CNO. And so she had a real passion and commitment to, to impact the community authentically uh, from a population health, from a community health perspective. And, and you know, she uh, was an incredible mentor to me. And so when she first assigned me this responsibility of, of the community health needs assessment, I would never have imagined that the work would have taken me into, into the work we did with the homeless, you know, truly our neighbors uh, within the community. And then, you know, what was interesting about it was as I started to dive in, uh, literally got a call one day 
um, after doing some work with the community, uh, particularly on this issue, uh, from the chairman of our Board of County Commissioners. And he said, um, I wanted to let you know that the, the commissioners uh, voted this morning 3-0 to appoint you as the chair uh, of the Commissioner's Advisory Board to deal with homelessness. And I can remember saying, well, that's interesting because no one asked me. And they said, oh, well, your CEO told us you would serve. And and, uh, and she told us that if you're called to serve, you'll serve. And uh, and I said, well, uh, whatever the boss says, I'm in. Uh, and the reality of it is, is that it became a, a several-year assignment uh, that truly taught me a lot about community health. Um, and more importantly, it taught me a lot about the, the power of partnerships um, and how if you can bring together other community service providers, if you can bring together elected officials, if you can help knock down the stigmas, if you can help people understand that homeless are our neighbors too. People that are homeless, many don't choose to be homeless. There are certainly some that actually do. But, but more importantly, even if they do choose to be homeless, we've got to get to the root causes of what that is. And so, you know, it was an incredible journey for me. And what it taught me was that um, as a leader, you've got to be willing to sometimes literally throw everything to the side. And if you're given a charge, be willing to step forward, even if it's uncomfortable, which I will readily admit with you, this was a very uncomfortable thing for me because it was not something I had any experience in. Uh, certainly had the support of my president and CEO, who, who obviously was, uh, was and always will be an incredible mentor to me. But it was still a very uncomfortable moment uh, for me. And I will tell you, it wasn't easy. Many times I felt like I was a referee because at times it was, it was you know, the homeless versus law enforcement and I was in the middle of it. Um, but I will tell you that um, in the end, the community uh, of love that we built working very closely together uh, with all those different stakeholders is something that I'll treasure for the rest of my life. Jeffrey, what a what a great way to start this conversation. I love that vision that that paints and the importance of the relationships. And I'd like to talk about in your health equity leadership, how you've been working on strategies on strategies to fight the COVID-19 pandemic in racial and ethnic minority, rural and other vulnerable communities. And during the pandemic, a group of Harrisburg University professors and staff joined the State Department of Health's COVID-19 health equity response team to help provide care and strategies aimed at protecting those most at risk. And partners include a Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine and the Centers for Disease Control Foundation. And this work has culminated in the development of the Health Equity Tracker. It's a tool that aims to give a detailed view of health outcomes by race, ethnicity, sex, socioeconomic status, and other critical factors. The tracker uses data from Google to examine COVID-19's impact on vulnerable populations. And it's even been used by community-based organizations across the country who are seeking and sharing best practices or best strategies for COVID-19 response and recovery. With the tracker, I understand you're working to change the narrative by leveraging the power of data and technology to identify understand and respond to health inequities in our communities in a way that allows every person to achieve an optimal level of health. After one year of working on the award-winning health equity tracker, the initiative is expanding into an open source framework to support the advancement of health equity for all. Can you please walk us through the work that has been done on the health equity tracker and how is it supporting clinical care considerations for vulnerable populations, enhancing predictive models, fostering coordination of strategic partnerships and communities, and aligning social determinants of health with political determinants of health. Absolutely, Daniel. And thank you, you know, certainly for, for that important question. So 
You know, let me tell you that when I was appointed to serve on the National Health Equity Task Force, certainly, you know, as part of the work uh, that I was really blessed to be a part of here in Pennsylvania, under then the leadership of Dr. Rachel Levine, uh, who obviously was our Secretary of Health and obviously now has the privilege of serving uh, for President Biden at, at the Health and Human Services Agency. One of the things that Dr. Levine had really encouraged us to do here in Pennsylvania that, you know, myself, along with incredible other uh, advocates and champions for health equity, was that we, we literally leave no stone unturned, uh, particularly during COVID-19. And, and that meant that we had to be very intentional about all the different organizations and individuals in our Commonwealth that could be disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And we had to be thoughtful uh, around providing real-time feedback, literally to the Secretary um, and also the governor's office. And, and uh, I will always say that I was blessed uh, not only to serve, but also to, to be alongside incredible state leaders, but also uh, individuals from, from academia and from healthcare who truly had a heart and desire to ensure that we were, were raising these concerns in a real time. And there were so many situations that we were able to mitigate as a result of that work. Um, and certainly our, our Office of Health Equity at the Pennsylvania Department of Health was a real change agent in that work. But when I joined the National Health Equity Task Force, which obviously was, a, as you noted, a project out of both the CDC Foundation and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, which at that time was actually under the leadership uh, of the Surgeon General, uh, former Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams, we were called you know, to come together then uh, through that process, actually under the Morehouse School of Medicine, Satcher Health Leadership Institute, uh, which obviously, you know, named after Dr. David Satcher and, and led by Dr. Daniel Dawes. And I will tell you from the moment we started that work, I felt captivated. Uh, it was probably one of the very few moments in my life where in many ways I thought I'm not even sure why I'm here uh, because clearly everyone, uh, you know, in this large Zoom has been at this work for farther long than I have, are far more experts in this work. And frankly, I could tell that, that um, in many ways, there were so many challenges going on in our country at that time that uh, I thought, how do we even start? But I will tell you that one of the things that Google did as part of that project was uh, the Google team uh, under Karen DeSalvo's leadership came in and immediately brought together the task force. And we went through what they called a health equity design sprint. Uh, which was an entire two days that brought together every one of us that were on the task force. And, you know, we started, you know, from hearing from Daniel and hearing from Dr. David Satcher, hearing from former Congresswoman Donna Christensen, Karen DeSalvo, Dr. Jerome Adams, and then obviously some additional leaders. And literally in that design sprint, they walked us through what uh, essentially would look like if, if uh, we were almost starting over. Uh, in addressing health equity? You know, what would we do to knock down systemic issues? Uh, what would it be like if we had a society that didn't have disparities? You know, frankly, knowing that equity is foundational, how can we use good data to leverage, you know, really solid uh, best practices to address health disparities? What, what can occur when we have the data and we can use the data to really form partnerships and really elevate collaboration? Um, and at the same time, you know, how do we ensure that we don't just talk about health equity in the terms of physical medicine, but do so also thinking about mental, mental health and behavioral health, uh, and really look to knock down those silos that we know so much exists still in our healthcare system. This design sprint is something I will never forget. And 
as I reflect on it, there were a couple of things that I would highlight that, that I found extremely noteworthy was the core of how we started this work was really foundational, but the leadership under Dr. David Satcher and Daniel Dawes was that we had to make sure that at all times we were coming back to a few key points, which was data, community, intersectionality, and a holistic approach to data, people, healthcare, policy, power and empowerment, the narrative power, and also the social determinants of health. And as we went through the work, what guided us was always coming back to those core areas. And then, you know, as we broke into to other groups, uh, you know, the Google team led us in this design sprint, which I will tell you was the first time I ever sat. Uh, obviously, I wish it was in person, but it was during the heart of COVID. And so that wasn't possible. But literally, we had a, a person that was literally on the Zoom screen drawing, representing what we were talking about, drawing. And it was so impactful to me because I can remember walking away every day and thinking, wow, this is probably the first time for me that I'm seeing the full picture how bad, frankly, our society is when it comes to issues of health equity. Despite us making steps forward under folks like Dr. Satcher and, and certainly the Obama administration, and certainly today uh, with the Biden-Harris administration, we still have so much work to do. And, and frankly, what I learned in this process was that as a society, there's still so many people that don't understand why we even talk about issues of health equity um, and why healthcare disparities have to be disrupted at all costs and how you've got to look at it through, you know, frankly, every lens uh, to truly address this systemically. Um, and so I will tell you that this was in many ways eye-opening without question, but also one of those aha moments for me where um, I knew that I had to be wholly committed uh, to be a part of this work, uh, not just in Pennsylvania, but at a national level. And I had to be willing to, uh, in many ways, get into good trouble, uh, as former Congressman John Lewis would say, that we not just hide behind these facts because we do far too often. Well, Jeffrey, that was definitely an important aha moment. And I can't imagine what it would felt like to see firsthand just how difficult it is to create systemic change to address health equity. And that's that's the same battle that we fight day in and day out in value transformation in our nation's healthcare system. And of course, now value and health equity is coming together to to create a, a really important movement with with a focal point there uh, in inequity. But I'm just thinking about the the problem that we have in these large health systems with the perpetuation of a of a risk averse culture and that type of culture in a in a healthcare setting it emphasizes and prioritizes risk avoidance above all clinical and therapeutic goals which invariably leads to excessive restriction and the compromise of an individual patient's human rights i mean the risk averse nature of healthcare is a barrier you know to the adoption of innovative products treatments interventions technologies that could help transform thousands of lives and it's like a push and pull pressure that leads to an outcome where many healthcare organizations don't think equity-based innovations will be worth the risk or expense. And I always say that the movement to equity and value in health is both an economic and a moral imperative, but we often hyper-focus on the short-term economics that hinder transformation in lieu of the more substantive changes needed to bring about societal health and injustice for all. And you're quite familiar with this vantage point, but continue to strive to remove barriers and seek innovations that help people thrive. So I wanted to ask you, Jeffrey, if you could describe some of the challenges that you've seen 
in our healthcare industry that create these institutional barriers to adopting innovations that can improve population health and health equity. And also given the glacial pace of value transformation in our country because of the, of the entrenched economics of a flawed business model, how would you recommend that we come together as a society to create a disruptive force for change? It's really a, a very interesting question. And, and, you know, I will tell you in my healthcare time, if there's one thing that I took from, from my tenure as an administrator that will always uh, stay with me around healthcare is particularly, you know, when we look at the U.S. healthcare system, predominantly majority of our healthcare systems are governed by trustees and board members who happen to be retired in many cases uh, or are community leaders uh, where they run their own you know, businesses, regardless of what those businesses are. And so in many ways, I have always said that, particularly when we're talking about value-based care, when we're talking about population health, uh, certainly when we're talking about health equity, we've got to do an immense amount of work to truly educate our boards and trustees, because these boards of directors and the trustees, you know, ultimately are are who who are responsible from a fiduciary end for the healthcare system, but are also responsible for the hiring and, and ultimate firing uh, or, or redirection of, of the president and CEO. And through that, obviously, the entire executive team. But also remember, you know, because of the fact that boards generally have a lot of engagement, you know, oftentimes the president of the medical staff serves on the board. So there's a lot of work that has to occur there. And I will say that if there's one aspect of our U.S. healthcare system that we have not done well, it really is the engagement with our governance structure within healthcare, where we've helped them understand their role as a board. Because ultimately, when we talk about value-based care, when we talk about population health, we've also got to talk about issues of patient safety. We've got to talk about issues of patient experience. And we've got to talk about all that we're doing to create a society uh, where, where people are healthier. And frankly, you know, the boards uh, ultimately, in my view, have a pretty significant responsibility there. So, I mean, to your exact point from an innovation perspective, I mean, there's a whole host of things. And I think healthcare... As, as you alluded, culturally, um, you know, for so long, and I was just with a group of, of amazing inspirational healthcare leaders uh, just last week. And, you know, it, it's interesting because to your exact point, you know, you walk away and you're with some of the most inspirational leaders. Um, and then you come back and then you hear these stories of how, you know, they're working to do some incredible work. But then again, you know, they get slowed down. And I will tell you that um, in, in, a, in my former healthcare system, I will, I will laugh and chuckle at sometimes when I think about it. But my former, uh, my former senior vice president, uh, who was really in many ways, not only a change agent, but someone that would trailblaze and transform, would often say, there's a couple departments that we almost don't want to engage when we're talking about transformational projects. And, and I would always say, well, you know, who's that when I was earlier in my career? And he would say, legal, corporate compliance, uh, risk management, and human resources. And, uh, you know, I chuckle because obviously we all know that those functions are incredibly important to all things that we do in healthcare. But I do think that why that was important in in his tongue-in-cheek manner was that, you know, we do also have to bring people along in this process and help people understand that if we don't change the way these types of departments, these functional leaders view their respective area, we'll never move healthcare forward. And so there has to be a healthy balance to understand, you know, where should those functional areas, you know, step in. Ultimately, we know healthcare has to innovate. We're sitting at a time right now 
uh, where we've been dancing around value-based care for far too long. We should already be fully implemented. We should already be seeing the impacts of it. But I think, you know, the, the, the role that insurance companies and payers and, you know, frankly, the, the structure that we have in place where some states have certain providers and, and you know, some states are better when it comes to Medicaid. And, and you know, certainly we've, we've seen government disinvestment uh, in a pretty robust way when it comes to healthcare. You know, the fact that, you know, we, we saw uh, for four years, the previous administration uh, always seek ways to take away the Affordable Care Act. We've just had a lot of what I would say political determinants of health. And people have to realize that, you know, you can take a lot of steps forward for progress, but you can also take a lot of steps back. And unfortunately, with a lot of these initiatives that in some ways were born out of the Affordable Care Act uh, and, and some of the most well-intentioned ones, have not had a lot of attention now for several years. And so we've got to continue to uh, to find ways. And this is where I would also suggest we've got to be more thoughtful around public-private partnerships, because if there's one thing we can do irregardless of government, particularly when we have changes in government, is if we can bring public-private partners together to really create some systemic solutions, uh, we don't necessarily have to always depend on the government. And so I think we've got to be thoughtful around that as well. Jeffrey, I appreciate the comments you've been making about changes that are needed and, you know, board education being so critical is one of those. And another one that I think is a key enabler for the future of our industry is workforce readiness to deliver on the promise of high value and and high quality care that delivers equitable outcomes for all. We're simply not going to achieve the aims of value-based care and health equity by structure alone. And policy efforts to advance APMs that realign the economics of medicine will be ineffective if the current incoming workforce lack the skills necessary to deliver in the new paradigm. The reskilling and upskilling of the workforce to ensure a high value system will require scalable educational solutions. Ultimately, the scale and impact of workforce skill and knowledge will be either a force multiplier or an impedance for change. And if the workforce acquires new knowledge, skills, and abilities, they can lead a shift from transaction-focused care delivery to one that's outcomes-focused. And the aggregation of these validated skills can become a foundation for organizational strategy to shift care and financial models to accept risk and change the focus staff and providers bring to the system. I know you've worked extensively in higher education, and you've studied the impact of competency-based learning and micro-credentialing on healthcare system change. Can you explain the importance of workforce development in healthcare and how we can change lives through education? And how will scalable workforce development programs centered on value-based care competencies ultimately lead to improvement in the human condition? Absolutely. This is obviously another area where we've got to systemically change, you know, certainly how healthcare systems view education. You know, obviously we know, you know, healthcare has historically only really compensated uh, for employees to go through bachelor's and master's degrees. Um, and, and certainly while that's important, we've also got to embrace, you know, certificates, certifications, and other options that are that are intentionally focused on training the workforce for the future. Um, and, in, and in training and, and producing the workforce that's required of, even of today. And so I think, you know, from your, you know, to your exact question, Daniel, we, you know, we know there are phenomenal uh, programs out there that are truly market ready that have been developed by experts within the field. And what we need to get is healthcare organizations to to come around and particularly the human resources uh, departments, the organizational uh, leadership departments of of healthcare to come around to understand that 
you know, yes, for clinical areas, you know, I get it, credentialing, licensing, you've got to have, you know, strict requirements. But outside of that, as a society, if we're going to prepare from a competency end, and we're going to have the workforce that can meet the needs of today, but also the needs of tomorrow, particularly when it comes to value-based care, population health, uh, certainly issues of health equity, um, and, and many others as well, we've got to create a society uh, within our healthcare system that not only welcomes, but values this type of education. It, it's, it's an imperative. Um, and and you know, Eric alluded to this earlier when we were talking about kind of a, a moral imperative. I would actually argue from a workforce perspective, if, if you're sitting in a healthcare system today and your healthcare system does not have an openness to support your current workforce or your future workforce from a recruitment level around uh, competency-based education and certificates and certifications, then, then I would actually say to you that you're actually harming your workforce strategy as compared to helping your workforce strategy. Um, and, you know, this is an issue that I spent a lot of my time on and, and you know, was just with uh, some healthcare leaders, chief learning officers over the last few weeks at some of our largest healthcare systems. And I will tell you that I'm encouraged by the fact that you're starting to see some healthcare leaders acknowledge the fact that you've got to change the models of care if you're also going to be able to impact the workforce. Um, but at the same time, we still see this very slow resistance to change when it comes to education. We've got to see rampant, rapid change here, or we're going to have continued challenges because we're at a time where we have so many people doing work right now that, you know, if you're an employee, you're not going to go for additional education if it's not compensated by your employer. You're just not going to. And so, you know, when we think about the impact we can have through these programs that, again, have been developed by industry, that's the key here. They've been developed by industry. Why we would not change our HR systems in a manner to meet this need is beyond me. But I'll, but I'll give you a story that kind of highlights this. A colleague of mine is, was working with a healthcare system recently that was trying to figure out how they could improve their nursing pipeline. Um, you know, significantly challenged issue across the country. Uh, my a colleague of mine who happens to do consulting said to them, well, have you looked at actually having nurses work less days and still treating them as if they were an employee with benefits? And the HR leader said, oh, we can't do that. We can't do that. Now, this was a non-union environment, mind you. Uh, we can't do that. And, and my colleague said, well, well why can't you? Um, if you truly want to create the culture where you're going to value your, your colleagues, why don't you change those roles? Those are your roles. They're not a government mandate. They're not a mandate from anybody but yourself. And so, you know, that's the type of stuff we've got to really elevate here. And that's why I made that comment earlier. We've got to elevate this, uh, which is why I've often said education in healthcare should not necessarily be just managed by human resources. It needs to be managed at a level around strategy and transformation. Because when we're thinking about education, it transforms lives. When we think about upskilling and reskilling, it has the opportunity to transform an organization. It can't just be viewed as a human resources function. It has to be viewed across the entire organization. Well, Jeffrey, I couldn't agree more. And I can't help but think that the tide is turning here. As you said, traditionally, uh, education has been managed within HR. But if you ask any C-suite individual that's leading strategy for their organization, ask them what the biggest challenge is right now, they're going to say, it's engaging my workforce and retaining them and just dealing with the, with the national labor shortage that we see in critical positions. I mean, we're seeing labor shortages royal uh, nearly every business and industry across the country. And the harm 
that it's inflicting on health systems is, is especially alarming as it renders patient populations vulnerable during the current and possibly the next public health crisis. And if the shortage of workers isn't bad enough, we also have a challenge in creating pathways, as you as you are, uh, said earlier, for upskilling and reskilling workers. The World Economic Forum uh, estimates that by 2025, 50% of all employees will need reskilling due to the adoption of new technologies and innovations. Five years from now, over two-thirds of skills considered important in, in today's job requirements will change. And a third of essential skills in 2025 will consist of competencies not yet regarded as crucial to today's requirements. And in the healthcare setting, these are going to be related to value-based care, population health, health equity, data analytics, care coordination, and on and on. And the workforce of tomorrow will also have to be empowered by advancing health equity in higher education, since we need a diverse pipeline of talent that can provide culturally competent care to marginalized and minoritized patient populations. So Jeffrey, how would you suggest that the healthcare system partner with higher education to develop a collaborative ecosystem for upskilling and reskilling the workforce for the future? And in recognizing that equity is the ultimate opportunity equalizer, how can we reinvigorate the promise of education for people of color? Absolutely. So I think in many ways, this is truly where to your to your, to the point you just alluded to, uh, another significant opportunity. And so certainly I'm encouraged by the fact that we are starting to see higher education and healthcare both acknowledge that they've got to more closely work together. I've always said that if you look at any region, if there's two industries that that can truly move it forward or improve the region, both from an education or healthcare perspective, clearly. It's when eds and meds comes together. Um, and you know, if you look at any economic development report, historically, it's education and healthcare that are highlighted as, as, as the two top industries that can, that can not only advance a region, but, but also help make someone want to live there uh, just because of the care and, and certainly the education that's provided, whether it's K through 12 or particularly at the higher education level. So there's a couple of things that I'd want to unpack there because, you know, Eric, one of the things that healthcare has not historically done well, and, and frankly, even higher education has opportunities to do better, is that we've got to create this dichotomy that we've got to reach the youth earlier to help them understand the true potential that you can have in healthcare. Uh, whether you're clinical or non-clinical, healthcare is, uh, as we all know, those of us that have served, a truly a special place where you can have a, a profound impact on lives. Um, and, you know, I think we've got to think about how we can generate that interest, again, whether clinical or non-clinical, so that our students, as they're thinking about their careers, understand that, you know, it, it's very, it's a special place. Um, and, and the impact that you can have is just so profound. So as part of that, we've also got to bring, you know, more and more engagement into, particularly at the high school level, around, you know, trainings and, and clinical trainings that can be done at high school for students who want to take that extra step so that we can get people into the workforce and healthcare sooner. And then we've got to really think about those pipeline type of pathway programs that really allow an individual to get into the workforce, grow in the workforce, have the support from their employer, continue to allow them to grow. So if they start as a medical assistant, they may do that actually in high school, finish their clinical experience and then be working um, and then actually have their, their employer uh, support them to become a nurse or, or support them to become a respiratory therapist. Those are the types of models we have to really be thinking about more intentionally today than ever, because we know that, um, you know, frankly, 
more and more people are not going to be going to college uh, just by the demographics alone. And so we've got to think about this employer element here that can be can be the ticket uh, that can help generate more uh, individuals that can be in the workforce and more trained individuals, particularly in the workforce. The other element to this is, is why this is important, is we have to be intentional on both the healthcare and on the higher ed side, that we are really thinking thoughtfully around those pipelines and those pathways and doing so in a manner that we go into our inner city schools, that we go into our urban schools, because what we have not done well is really look to truly diversify our workforce. We've done some good work. Uh, there are some healthcare systems that have done some really good work, but across the board, we've got to do more. Uh, we've really got to ensure that the, the workforce looks like the patients that they serve. And I would argue today that most healthcare systems haven't even come close to that. And that's where you know close partnerships with higher education at all levels, community colleges, training providers, four-year publics, four-year privates, et cetera, can really step in and play an important role. And for me, it's back to your earlier point, Eric, it's a moral imperative. We know study after study shows us that if our workforce looks like our patients and can relate to the patients with empathy, then we can actually improve care. And so clinically or non-clinically, we've got to work on that. And then the final point I would just make is, um, you know, healthcare, like education, we talk about lifelong learning. Well, healthcare is the exact industry where lifelong learning is such an important part of it. And so, you know, we've got to think about whether, again, clinically or non-clinically, how we as a healthcare system and a higher education uh, industry can really partner in many ways to have our higher ed education institutions become the organizational learning operations for healthcare. We have so much talent in higher education, and normally healthcare organizations have so little true FTEs and resources in the learning and development area. Well, why not use the treasure that exists in higher education to support that? You know, if you're a continuing education department at a higher education institution, you are without question poised and prepared to help a healthcare system. And so, uh, again, for me, we've got to use the power of partnerships uh, at a time right now when, when it's so imperative to the statistics that you highlighted. But, but I would even argue that as time goes on, this is actually going to become even more challenging just because of the demographics and the population shifts that we're seeing. And again, we haven't hit the situation where so many baby boomers are going to retire yet. Uh, some people call it the, you know, the gray tsunami. Uh, we haven't hit that yet. Uh, it's coming. And uh, I don't think we're, we're fully prepared on the healthcare side. Jeffrey, I want to stay on this topic of workforce. You know, healthcare organizations are finally faced with this reckoning that's been looming for decades. They're at a point where they have to re-envision their strategy around talent, attraction, retention, and mobility, or they're going to lose the war for talent. We have a tight healthcare labor market right now, and healthcare companies need to be creative in attracting and nurturing talented people. And investing in their employees' career education, as you suggested, may be one key to unlocking that organization's full potential. Another potential opportunity is career mobility. It's, it's like a secret weapon in the ongoing struggle to retain talent. Instead of looking at career mobility as an external process, healthcare organizations should be considering the concept of opportunity mobility where career advancement can happen internally. And given the accelerated change we'll be seeing in value-based care movements in the years to come, upskilled employees should readily be able to contribute more expansive focus within their respective organizations to ensure success in patient-centered care delivery and digital transformation. How would you further advise healthcare organizations in their need to address 
both imperatives for equity and value, while also building strategies for workforce talent, attraction, retention, and mobility. And given burnout and moral injury that we see currently in healthcare workforce, are brighter times ahead for them when considering the value-based care movement? Yeah. You know, the first thing I'll say to this this question, Daniel, and and it's an important one, is we can't just continue to talk about resilience. For far too long, we really preach and practice resilience, resilience, resilience in our healthcare workforce. And the reality of it is, is that in many ways, our culture within healthcare systems and organizations is what contributes to burnout. It's the fact that nurses, but also other professionals are doing mundane tasks that that ultimately take them away from operating at the highest part of their license. Um, it's the fact that, you know, we don't have enough medical assistance and then our nurses have to, you know, do other uh, aspects of, of care and support. Uh, it's the fact that when we've, you know, implemented new technologies, uh, we've done so with some good intentions, but we didn't actually even ever engage our, our workforce that's actually going to use them and make sure that it actually helps them in the work that they do. And so I think in many ways, we've got to look at those models of care. We've got to look at our practices within each organization. We have to ask ourselves, in what way is this helping our workforce do their job? And then on the flip side, we've got to say, in what way is this hampering us in doing our job and further leading to this burnout and frustration? Because the reality of it is, is that it's as simple as that. If we have the burning desire to change this, we've got to have the desire to look at those aspects. Beyond that, though, we've also got to think about how we truly engage our workforce in truly being a part of redesigning that practice. In my healthcare administration days, I can remember times when we as an organization would go through cost savings measures. And I will tell you, some of our best partners were were people on the front lines who would tell us, oh, cut this out, cut this, cut this, um, because they knew where there were inefficiencies. Uh, They knew when there was duplication because they were on those front lines. And I think we've got to get back to that engagement uh, where we're truly welcoming, valuing everybody. We've also got to, uh, particularly, I think, to to your point with value-based care, you know, we're going to come to a time where, um, you know, and we're, we're, we're seeing this certainly now too. And, and obviously, you know, with the COVID pandemic um, certainly has made this challenging, but, you know, when we think about the fact that uh, both now with the quadruple aim, uh, there's a larger emphasis on uh, patient experience, but there's also a larger emphasis on our provider experience and our workforce experience. And I think as, as that work continues and becomes more and more important, I'm encouraged by the fact that we're seeing healthcare systems recognize that like they did when they started to bring on leaders in diversity, equity, and inclusion, they're also doing that now in sort of this area of wellness and, and you know, trying to create some systemic um, you know, solutions to the issues of burnout. One of the ways that I've uh, specifically encouraged organizations to think about is that at the end of the day, um, don't just create C-suite positions, but truly think about how you can how you can embed these aspects into every fabric of the organization. So whether it's diversity, equity, inclusion, whether it's wellness, uh, whether it's you know this this encouragement that we address burnout, we've got to literally incorporate that into every aspect of the organization, so that we can truly create that sense of belonging um, and truly create that safe space where where if someone feels they don't have enough workforce, they can raise their hand and say that they fear it's going to lead to a patient safety issue. Um, That's actually a 
and a positive thing if we have that safe space where an individual can say that and I will tell you I mean as a professor it it, it hurts me greatly when I hear from my students who are clinical um, share with me that they don't have that safe space in their healthcare systems um, just recently one of my students shared that story and and um, you know that's sad because you know it's not it's not uh, that long ago uh, when some of the most important papers and, and reports were issued on patient safety we know how, how many deaths still occur as a result of patient safety. And ultimately, uh, this type of culture where, where people are fearful is actually leading to more deaths because clinicians can't feel as if they can report issues or even staff that aren't clinical don't feel like they can report issues. And so we've got to think about these things in a very tangible manner um, because literally lives are, are on the line. Jeffrey, I wanted to stay on this topic of uh, workforce burnout a, a little while longer. This is such an important issue. And even before the COVID-19 pandemic, the National Academy of Medicine found that burnout had reached crisis levels in the U.S. health workforce with 35 to 54 percent of nurses and physicians, upwards of 45 to 60 percent of them are uh, reporting symptoms of burnout. I mean, burnout is an occupational syndrome. It's characterized by a high degree of emotional exhaustion and depersonalization and cynicism and a low sense of personal accomplishment at work. I mean, people in any profession can experience burnout, yet it's especially worrisome among health workers given the potential impacts on our healthcare system and therefore our collective health and well-being. And burnout's especially associated with risk of mental health challenges such as anxiety and depression and burnout among health workers has harmful consequences for patient care and safety, such as decreased time spent between the provider and the patient, increased medical errors, hospital-acquired affections, you know, it impacts staffing shortages and so forth. In addition, health worker burnout, I mean, it has costly repercussions on the healthcare system with the estimates saying now that annual burnout related turnover costs are $9 billion for nurses and, you know, anywhere between, you know, three to $6 billion for physicians. And these estimates don't even include turnover among other types of healthcare workers across the continuum of care. So in this present moment, you know, before we're able to see the long-term uh, benefits of a value transform, the value transformed culture of care, you know, how should, health systems be prioritizing systems-oriented organizational-level solutions to ameliorate workforce burnout? I mean, how can leaders do a better job of honoring the individual worker instead of just offering them pizzas and back massages and free subscriptions to meditation apps? Yeah, I think they have to be incredibly intentional around what is it in their culture, what is it in their environment, uh, what is it within their practice that that is not allowing them to to feel as if uh, they're able to operate, you know, in a manner that does not lead, you know, to the burnout? I mean, you know, what's what's unfortunate I think about this topic is is many people, you know, and and I even feel like I hear this from some healthcare leaders, is you know this is this came out of the pandemic. The reality of it is is, is it did not. This has existed for for far long. Uh, certainly, the pandemic highlighted it because now we're we're dealing with a lot of workforce changes in the workforce, where you know many people have chosen to just not return to work if they don't have to, because they also had to you know take care of their kids for so long and take care of parents and take care of other loved ones. And so, I think I will always say that this burnout issue is actually a systemic one, um, and 
and this is again where um, I know some people will, will challenge me on this, but I will come back to it and continue to say that ultimately uh, boards and trustees need to be asking the executive team these questions. Uh, what are you doing to create the environment that values our workforce? And, and they, this issue needs to, be a, needs to be part of our patient safety reports in the same way that boards hear about patient safety. Because ultimately, if our workers aren't safe, our patients aren't safe. And so we've got to ensure that we have adequate, effective reporting on all these issues. And the governing boards who have fiduciary responsibility have to hold the executive team accountable. Uh, and I mean truly accountable uh, to these issues uh, because we know that, you know, on the other element of this, uh, that's important to acknowledge is that on the regulatory side, we also know there are workforce issues. And so, you know, we're, we're at a time where we, even on the regulatory element of this, we, we know this, you know, the departments of health and others who regulate on behalf of uh, centers of Medicare and Medicaid also don't have the adequate workforce to also do some of their most important work. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important that we look at this full scope and acknowledge it doesn't matter what, you know, which healthcare system you are, the large ones, the small, the medium size, for-profit, not-for-profit, we all have this challenge. And instead of, um, you know, thinking about this in a competitive manner, we should be thinking about this collaboratively, and we should work together to, to identify what, what can we learn from one another to ensure that we're, we're actually addressing this. I actually heard a, a talk recently that had, um, you know, Kathy Sanford, who's the chief nurse executive for Common Spirit Health, and, and Ariana Huffington, obviously, at, at Thrive Global. And, you know, there's a lot of systemic things to your point that, that can be done. And, and, you know, you can't say to a healthcare workforce that, you know, here's your solution, here's yoga, uh, with a little extra, a little extra refreshment, a little break. That's not going to solve this. We've got to really think about, do we change shifts? Uh, we've got to think about, you know, do we have more time for debriefing? Uh, one of the things that I've continued to feel is that we don't debrief enough in healthcare, whether clinical or non-clinical, we don't talk about what we just experienced. And we need to give our clinicians and our, our team members that opportunity. We, we expect them to get in the game so quickly without ever getting a chance to actually reflect and talk about it. Um, and, you know, uh, I don't always say this, but, but in many ways, I do like to use the comparison that, that our healthcare workforce are like athletes. And we know that if athletes need a break, they get a break. And so we've got to figure out how we, how we create that dichotomy in healthcare, that when they need a break, they've got to have a break. And we've got to support them systemically in making whatever changes are needed within each healthcare system to help them feel not only appreciated, um, but also valued for the, for the wonderful person that they are. Jeffrey, I love that visual that you shared. And I think it's so critical that we've, we've got to do more for our, our workforce and make sure that they have what they need. And you've spoken out frequently on the need for boards and you just mentioned it again for boards to hold leaders accountable in the health system. But we don't typically see board members focused on how their leaders impact organizational culture so individuals can thrive. You know, a leader can have their biggest impact on culture if they lead with love, servant leadership, authenticity, and they invest in those around them. We often hear about the, the phrase that culture trumps strategy, but I'd go so far as to say that the love for others encompasses both culture and strategy at the highest levels. And in your career, you were mentored by a CEO that led with that authenticity and love. And that experience left an indelible impression in your formative years as an up-and-coming leader. Can you share your insights on the importance of love-driven leadership and the importance of authenticity and mentorship? And since we're seeing so many incumbents struggle, 
with envisioning a future for value and equity because of the perverse financial incentives of fee-for-service? How can current business leaders seek reformation in their leadership style so that their character and moral compass drives the future of their organization above all else? You know, I would tell you that the first thing I would do, and, and obviously, you know, I say this uh, and I acknowledge I'm not paid to say this, but I would encourage every healthcare leader and every board member at a healthcare system uh, to read Chris Lowney's book on heroic leadership. Um, as you know, as you may know, Chris Lowney is the chairman uh, of the Common Spirit Health Board of Directors, wrote that book and has helped develop educational programs uh, on this very topic of heroic leadership, which very much focuses on love-driven leadership and, 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 and argues you know, in his book and, and in all of his writings that as a leader, uh, you know, leadership starts with love. Um, and so whether, uh, you know, in all of our interactions through communications, whether we're verbal, you know, writing, et cetera, we should be, you know, we should be communicating in a manner that, that makes people feel valued, appreciated, um, and really creates that culture uh, of true openness where an individual wants to be in conversation with you. So from my vantage point, um, this is an area that I have often said, I think healthcare is at a point where you have to do a lot of work uh, culturally. You know, when we when we really take the skin off of this, particularly and really reflect on it, we have to acknowledge in many ways that, you know, many healthcare systems have have really had, you know, cultures that were started at a time uh, that in medicine when it was very, very different than what it is today. Uh, you know, a lot more leadership. And when I say leadership, a lot more focus on leadership, particularly on the physician side. Uh, at a time when physicians were very, very different in the healthcare ecosystem. In fact, a, a dear friend of mine serves in as, as an associate chief medical officer, and he regularly shares with me that it's amazing to him that, you know, how many physicians he still has to have accountable discussions with um, because they just don't understand how to treat uh, one another. And so, and again, most of these physicians are, are physicians that have been, you know, particularly in healthcare for a very, very long time. And certainly at a time where uh, I hate to say it, but it was okay to bully uh, at those times. And it's sad to hear that because it should never be okay. So, you know, I think for, first and foremost, we have a lot, a lot of work to do. Uh, we know our healthcare workforce has more uh, generations working in it today than ever before. We've got to embrace those generational differences instead of highlighting the differences as a problem. We've got to embrace them. If we if we would sit down and think of all the different elements that millennials bring and Generation Y brings and baby boomers bring and create mentorship programs so that people have support and encouragement and guidance, we could create a workforce that that would be sustainable and would give back to one another in a manner that would cr truly be uh, inspirational. That's what I faced. Uh, earlier in my career. I mean, yes, I'm the son of a nurse, uh, had incredible parents. Uh, but when I came into my first uh, first job uh, at Pocono, I was surrounded by an executive leadership team, majority of them who truly wanted to impact the future leaders. Um, and it was early in my career there where my CEO and my senior vice president and even our CFO uh, really took me under, under their wing and helped me uh, truly see that I could be a leader. Um, and truly sought out opportunities to help me grow. That's what leadership is all about. And I think, you know, for leaders who aren't doing that intentionally, for leaders who aren't seeking out opportunities to mentor, uh, for leaders who aren't creating a culture uh, that, that really allows individuals to, to feel supported and, and encouraged, um, it's time for them to go. Uh, because the reality of it is, is that they're not doing anything positive for their organization, and they're not doing anything positive to keep the workforce here. Because we know 
uh, the younger workers today will be gone. Uh, if they don't feel that it's a supportive environment, they're out. Um, and you know what? I would tell them to get out because the reality of it is, is it's, it's far past time here for us to be at a time when, when culture isn't valued. And so we've got to figure out a way. And, and the other element here, as I mentioned earlier, is we've got to make sure that we're creating that sense of belonging, um, whether it's on the DEI lens, uh, whether it's on you know, other uh, levels of culture, we need to ensure our organizations are truly culturally aware to really practice uh, you know, a supportive environment that makes people feel like they belong there. And that, to me, is loving leadership, uh, really being intentional about mentorship, being intentional about how we're all in this work together, um, and being intentional around, it's not about titles. Frankly, if, if a leader is that concerned about titles, then, then they forgot what a leader truly is. Uh, because some of our best leaders haven't cared at all uh, about a title. And so get focused on those things. And I think you'll see culture, you'll see an organization that will actually be the one that people flock to from a workforce perspective. Well, Jeffrey, as we finish up our conversation today, I'd like to engage you on this immense challenge we have in leading transformation in a highly polarized and tribal society as the gap in attitudes, beliefs, and values between groups or tribes widens, we begin to disagree on more things and disagree more strongly, and then begin thinking that this disagreement represents a deeper flaw in the moral character of members of another group, and it represents a basic defect in their ability to see reality for what it really is. And at this point, the common ground begins to collapse, and the motivation to segregate becomes strong. And we see this toxic tribalism and hyperpolarization happening on major societal issues impacting uh, public health, issues like mass shootings, climate change, abortion rights, gender affirming care models. Since his move to value based care is now blurring the lines between population health and public health by addressing social determinants. I'm wondering if healthcare should also be taking a stance on important policy issues related to gun rights and climate policy, abortion rights, social justice, et cetera. What is your perspective on the role of a healthcare leader in advocating for social justice and environmental sustainability and human rights? Even though these are all related to health, is advocacy on behalf of these controversial issues a bridge too far? No, I, I would argue in many ways that at the end of the day, if you don't advocate on these issues, then you're just going to further continue the trajectory around healthcare disparities. Because uh, irregardless, if you take just the abortion rights issue alone, that issue alone has significant ramifications from a healthcare disparities end. And this is something that I get myself into good trouble all the time and even did in my healthcare days as well. But, but at the core here, we have to remember that aspects of our society, important populations in our society are disproportionately impacted by these very issues. And if we are serving in healthcare with a passion and commitment that goes back to the core of when healthcare first started in the United States, which is, you know, if we think of our emergency rooms, we are here to support everybody, irregardless of their ability to pay, then we have to advocate because that means everybody. We have to be thoughtful in how we do it. Uh, to your point, it's, it's unfortunate that it's become polarized. At the end of the day, though, we've got to remain rooted in the mission to serve all. Um, and I think, you know, we've seen some amazing stories 
uh, around this country, uh, despite this polarized time of physicians and nurses and other uh, healthcare leaders who have done the right thing for their patients and who have done the right thing at a time when it's really dangerous to do so. But those are the people we applaud because at the end of the day, when you take that commitment on uh, as a doctor, as a nurse, as a healthcare leader, uh, you take a commitment to serve all. And that means you advocate. Uh, and you know, I can remember my CEO would often say, she would say, I don't like politics. In fact, she would say, I hate politics. But if, I'm gonna, if there's an issue where I need to advocate on behalf of my patients, then I'm going to get into good trouble to, to do that because that's the right thing to do. That's the attitude we have to have in healthcare, uh, or we're just going to continue to perpetuate healthcare disparities and truly never, we'll, we will never at that point, if we have leaders that sit in our society today like that, we'll never achieve health equity. Well, amen to that, Jeffrey. I, I just can't agree more, and, and I, I'm just so inspired by your leadership and your willingness to, to say these important things, and I, I share your optimism for a brighter tomorrow. Uh, I think healthcare is truly on its way to undergoing a significant transformation, and it's going to require you know, love-driven leadership, focus on health equity, and advocacy on behalf of vulnerable populations. I want to thank you again so much for joining us this week on the podcast. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Absolutely, Eric. Thank you. Thank you and Daniel for, you know, the opportunity and also for all that you both do. 